Would you take your <clears throat> Would you take your Bibles with me and turn to Psalm 16? Psalm 16, which if you have one of the red Bibles, is on page 453. This is uh, continuing our series of selected psalms. We've just chosen some psalms uh, to preach uh, through this series, and this morning we're looking at Psalm 16. And if you're able, I want to invite you one more time to stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Psalm 16, a mitcom of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places." Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, thank you once more for your word. We never want to take it for granted that we get to open up and read these words, and the words we read are the very words of God. The Creator, our Father, You, the One who, have, who has redeemed us, You have spoken, You have given us Your Word, and this morning we need it. You know our need, You knit us together in our mother's wombs. Would You meet our needs this morning through Your Word? It may be comfort or conviction. But whatever it is, Father, would you address our hearts? And Father, I pray for myself in my own weakness to stand and preach your word, this great responsibility. I pray that you would bring to my mind that which you want me to say. Remove things that you want me to avoid. But may the preaching of your word not be a demonstration of the wisdom of man. May it be a demonstration of the Spirit of God working among us in power so that we walk out of here not with our faith resting in the weakness of man, but in the power of the one who raises the dead. We ask this for our good and for the honor and glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever read a book that even years later... You can think back and remember how you felt when you read it. One book like that for me was a book by J.I. Packer called A Quest 
for Godliness. It was a book about the Puritans, about their vision of life. I read it sometime in, in the mid to late 90s. I'm not exactly sure uh, what precise year I read it. I do remember, though, where I was reading those pages. I'd shown up at Union, a college student thinking the Lord was directing me to pastoral ministry, clueless as to what that meant, really clueless as to what the Christian life should look like. And somehow or another, I'm not even sure how, I picked up this book, Quest for Godliness by G.I. Packer. And as I began reading it, I found my imagination captured. It was as if that book held up for me a way of life that, that I was unfamiliar with, but I deeply desired. Just to give you an excerpt from the book, Packer writes this about the Puritans. The Puritans exemplified maturity. We don't. We are spiritual dwarfs, man-centered, manipulative, success-oriented, self-indulgent. The Puritans, by contrast, were giants. They were great souls serving a great God. In them, clear-headed passion and warm-hearted compassion combined. Packer continues, they lived by a rule of life planning and proportioning their time with care, not so much so that they could keep bad things out, as much as to make sure that they got all the good and important things in. Necessary wisdom then is now for busy people. We today who tend to live unplanned lives at random feel swamped and distracted most of the time. We would learn much from the Puritans at this point. When I read that, I resonated with that swamped and distracted feel of life, feeling as if I was living at random. And I wanted to live like these men that Packer was holding up. He went on to describe them as redwoods, it's as if they are these giant mature trees in a forest, referring to their mature holiness and seasoned fortitude. As I said, not only did that book capture my imagination, but it's as if when I think of that book, it's as if I can almost remember a certain aroma that I associate with that book, just an aroma of godliness that I wanted. Now, as much as that book impacted me positively, I think my memories of that book at that time in my life also shed light on my ignorance of the Bible. Now, by that, I don't mean, had I read the Bible, I would have seen something that Packer was getting wrong. No, I don't mean that at all. Packer's book is immensely helpful. I would highly recommend it. But what I mean is, when I read that book, I didn't think there were other good pictures of that kind of mature godliness that I'd known of, as if a quest for godliness was on its own and holding up that kind of biographical account of somebody who was a picture of mature godliness. Had I known my Bible better, I might have said, just read Psalm 16. Because in Psalm 16, David unveils his life a bit. He pulls back the curtains on his heart to let us know what drives him, what's in him. And what we see in Psalm 16 is a picture, a model of mature godliness, of Christ-exalting, God-centered spiritual maturity. As much as I breathed in the aroma of that book, I wish I had also been spending more time breathing in the aroma of something like Psalm 16. 
After all, it was meditating on Psalm 16 this week that led me to think back to Packer's book that I read years ago. And of course, the reason is, is because I think this psalm does the same thing. It holds up for us a way of life that I hope in my prayer this morning is that captures our imagination. That, that we read this psalm and think we too want to imitate David in these ways even as he imitates our Lord. He gives us a picture of what it looks like to be a child of God, to devote oneself to the glory of God, to, to seek to love God with our heart and soul and mind and strength. Maybe we could say it this way, David shows us what it looks like to be devoted to God, satisfied in God, and trusting in God. And that's really how I want to walk through the psalm this morning in three sections under those headings. And my hope is that as we walk through under those three headings, that, that not only then will it lead us to understand the psalm, but perhaps even uh, more importantly, to understand and be desirous that our lives would mimic the life of David that we see in this psalm. So I first want to start then with this first heading that covers the first four verses of the psalm, David's Devotion to the Lord. David's devotion to the Lord. David starts this psalm much like we would see a number of lament psalms. Uh, lament psalms actually make up the greatest category of psalms in the Psalter. Those are the kinds of psalms where David cries out from his pain and his agony and his hurt, asking God to deliver him. Here, the psalm starts the same way. David says in chapter 16, verse 1, preserve me, O God. Now, if we're familiar with the rest of the Psalter, we would anticipate David then to go on from there and talk about all the reasons why he needs to be preserved. For example, look back at Psalm 12, which, which may just be on the, the previous page in your Bible. Psalm 12 starts like a good lament psalm as well. Save, O Lord. Sounds a lot like, preserve me, O God, doesn't it? But then David goes on in Psalm 12 to list the reasons why he needs to be saved. Save me, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished. Verse 2, everyone utters lies. Verse 5, the poor are plundered. Now, you might anticipate then the same thing in Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, and now David is going to tell God all the reasons he needs to be preserved, but that's not what he does. It's as if preserve me, O God, are the only elements of lament in this psalm or only elements of crying out. But the rest of the psalm shifts. And what David does in the rest of verse 1 is he begins to develop reasons why God should preserve him. He provides the basis for his prayer as if to say this, God, preserve me because what you know about me is that I'm devoted to you. That's what he says in verse 1, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. As David cries out to God, he begins to say, you know this about me, I take refuge in you, you are my Lord. What David is saying is, I've devoted my life, my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength, my being to you. My hope is in you, God. If I'm going to be protected, it's going to be because you protect me. If I'm going to know joy, it's going to be because I find it in you. In other words, David was not, like so many more of Israel's kings, hedging his bets. It wasn't as if David was saying, God, I'm hoping in you, but just in case you're not capable of what I'm asking for, 
I'm also devoting myself a little bit on the side to Baal. I have a couple Asherah poles out, right? A few, few idols, I've made some monuments to them, might as well cover my basis. Right? That's not what he's saying. God, you alone are my hope. I take refuge in you. You are my Lord. Not only that, but he continues in verse 2, I have no good apart from you. David is saying to the Lord, this is how devoted to you I am. Not only are you my only hope, not only are you my refuge, not only are you my Lord, but I recognize any good that comes into my life comes from you. Not only are you the one in whom I have hope, but all good things I see is coming from your hands. And then interestingly, in verse 3, he shifts to this horizontal plane, to to his relationships with others. He says in verse 3, as for the saints in the land, they are excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. What David is showing is that he understands that his devotion to the Lord will be evidenced in his affection for the saints. Now, I think that's a key lesson that I missed growing up. I'll honestly say that there's much about what has become normal in my life now, and I hope normal in the lives of those of us who are part of Cornerstone Community Church, that really seemed quite foreign to me growing up. When I was growing up, I thought the height of worship was when I was alone with God. In fact, I remember gathering for church and thinking the height of of, of gathering with the saints on Sunday was if you could get to the point of feeling like you're the only one in the room. Yeah, there may be 375 of us or whatever, but it's like we're all having our own quiet time in the same room. But that's not the picture of the Bible. The picture of the Bible is that our devotion to the Lord doesn't lead us to want to distance ourselves from others so that we can be wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. Our devotion to the Lord actually leads us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, to have affection for them, to delight in them. This is what David is saying. God, one of the ways my devotion to you is manifested is that the saints in the lands They are the ones in whom my soul delights. I love your people. And not only that, but on the flip side, in verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. He says, I understand that there are wicked ones among us as well, individuals who do not love you, individuals who run after other gods, and I know that their path is hopeless. As he says at the beginning of verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after false gods will multiply. And so David wants to distance himself from that wickedness. I'm not going to take part in their drink offerings, he says. I'm not going to take part in their their animal sacrifices or the like. In fact, at the end of verse 4, he says, I'm not even going to take their name on my lips. When you take all of this together, verses 1 through 4, this is a beautiful picture of David's devotion to God. He says to God, you're my only hope, my good comes from you, I love your people, and I run from wickedness. If we were to ask ourselves, are we devoted to God, that's a good summary question for us to ask ourselves. Are we hoping in God alone? Do we recognize every good in our lives as coming from Him? Do we love His people? How can we say we love the one whom we have not seen? 
when we do not love those whom we do see? And are we running from wickedness? But one thing I'll say is as beautiful picture, as beautiful of a picture as that kind of a devotion to God is, I think sometimes we struggle with it. I think we, we understand this kind of devotion to God when we speak to the unbeliever about coming to Christ. So, for example, we understand when an unbeliever comes to Christ, we throw ourselves wholly on the Lord. In that sense, we understand we do not hedge our bets, right? We say to the unbeliever, Jesus Christ is your only hope for righteousness. He lived a perfect life. He died to pay for our sins. He was raised from the dead on the third day so that if we turn from our sins and place our faith in Christ, we have eternal life. Why? Not because we get about 90% of Christ's righteousness and we supplement the rest. We say, no, 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 it's holy of Christ. Everyone who stands before the Lord and is accepted by God on the day of judgment will do so 100% because of the righteousness of Christ for us. It's all of Christ or it is not of Christ. All of grace or it is all of works. And so I think we understand when we speak to the unbeliever that we wholly trust in and devote ourselves to Christ. And yet sometimes... We then come to faith and we begin living the Christian life and we say things like, we can trust God and hope in God while filling our lives with fretting and anxiety, don't we? Perhaps because we don't trust that God will do for us what is best. Or worse, because we do not perceive Him as giving us what we deem as best We try to go out and seize something that He has forbidden, thinking it will give us the happiness that He's holding out on us. So, for example, for the believer who feels lonely may find himself pursuing an unbeliever for a relationship because to this point in his life he says to himself, but God hasn't brought along what I think I need. So I will go ahead and seize it myself. Do you see how that's an opposite picture of what David's providing here? This is, this is setting up the false god idol on the side while saying, I hope in you. Or to the believer who, who battles same-sex attraction and yet is walking in holiness and yet decides, I'm going to go ahead and, and give in to this because I do not think that God can satisfy me, that, that God can provide for the loneliness that I feel. In each of those occasions, it's not only that that individual would be pursuing sin, it's also that we are reflecting the opposite of what David says here. We do not think that God is deserving of our hope and devotion and trust. David gives us a picture of what it looks like to be devoted to God. But this really then leads us to another point. Because you will not have the devotion David has to God in verses 1 through 4 unless you understand another element in the psalm, which leads us to our second heading, David's satisfaction in the Lord. David's satisfaction in the Lord. In verse 5 and 6, David writes, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, 
what, what might be lost on us when we read verse 5 and verse 6 is that David is drawing from what God said to Aaron in the priesthood and the Levites. You remember when, when the Lord brought the tribes into the land and He apportioned to each of them the, their inheritance. This tribe will get this portion of land. This tribe will get this portion as their inheritance. He, he set the lines. This, this section is yours. This section is yours. The Levites were the one tribe that did not find an inheritance. They did not get an inheritance. Why? Because the Lord said to Aaron in Numbers 18.20, now, now listen to these words as we reflect on verses 5 and 6. In Numbers 18.20, the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. Why? Here's how God continues. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. Now, when we understand that, and David no doubt having that in mind, when you come back to verse 5, David is saying, when he says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, you hold my lot, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance, David is reflecting that he understands that despite what happens in his life, he has God. God is his portion. God is his inheritance. And God is the one, he says at the end of verse 5, who holds his lot. Consequently, he is able to say, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, this could be David's way of saying this. I'm satisfied in God. I have him, and that's enough. But man, I'm also really thankful that everything I've desired in my life really has happened. I have a beautiful inheritance. That may be what David's saying. He may be saying, I have God, that's enough, but I thank God that things turned out really, really well for me. I don't think that's what he's saying, though. I think the reason he can say at the end of verse 6, I have a beautiful inheritance, is either because, and maybe both of these realities, either because he knows that because the Lord is my portion and my cup, that is, because I have God, it doesn't matter what comes along in my life. I have Him, and that is beautiful. He is my inheritance, much like He said to Aaron, I am your portion, not the land, I. But it may also be that He understands, as He notes at the end of verse 5, you hold my lot. Now, now, now by lot, what we mean is what comes to us in life. We sing recently, I think last week, uh, it is well with my soul, as we gathered. You remember the line, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it's well with my soul. When we refer to our lot, we just refer to your circumstance in life. What David then is saying in verse 5 is, whatever circumstances come into my life, you hold them. You hold my lot. And so what David, I think, is saying is no doubt the reason he knows he has the lines have fallen from a pleasant place is the reason he has a beautiful inheritance is because he knows two truths. One, no matter what happens, he has God. But two, whatever circumstance comes into his life is carefully handed out by God to him. It comes through the Lord's loving and caring hands. And therefore, as he walks through life, he knows no one can take away from me the Lord. He is my portion. And no one can thwart 
God's purposes for him. Because God is the one who holds his lot. God is the one who directs the circumstances of his life. But this isn't then a picture as well, because we can say the same for us. We can say of you and me, if our faith is in Christ, today we have the Lord, no matter what happens. And we know that whatever circumstances come into our lives are directed under the careful, loving care of God. Again, the end of verse 5, you hold my lot. We should not then take these truths, looking at David or thinking about ourselves, and thinking, therefore, the response is to be entirely passive. Because I have God, it doesn't matter what happens in my life. Because He directs my circumstance, I'll just sit back and let Him do that. Just a let go and let God attitude, or maybe to update it a bit, Jesus, take the wheel kind of thing, right? Whatever metaphor you want to use. That's not what's going on here. The reason I don't, I think we can say, we know that's not what's going on here, is because in verse 7, David says, I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. When he speaks of the Lord giving him counsel, or in the night his heart instructing him, I, make he's, I think he's making a reference here to what we find elsewhere in the psalm. For example, at night... What happens? Well, we can read in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who meditates, who delights in the law of God, who meditates on his word day and night. Or Psalm 119, 11. I hide God's word in my heart that I might not sin against him. So when David speaks of receiving the Lord's counsel and in the night his heart instructing him, I think what he's saying is he is the one who meditates on God's word, hides it in his heart, and receives counsel and instruction from the Lord. In other words, what David is doing according to verse 7 is he is devoting himself to knowing and obeying God's word. As God's word gives him counsel, as God's word instructs him, he obeys So this is not David sitting back idly by and saying, I'm not going to do anything because I have God and God directs my life. This is David saying, God, you've given me counsel and you've given me instruction and I will obey it. And as I obey it, no matter what transpires, I have you and I rest in the fact that you hold my lot. Now, brothers and sisters, we find ourselves this morning in the exact same place. You and I as believers commanded to obey all that Christ commands, should be men and women of God who devote ourselves to knowing God's Word, to seeking His counsel, to seeking His instruction, to to, to mastering His Word so that we might obey it. But as we obey His Word, we do not know what will come along in our lives. Simply mastering God's Word does not mean all things will therefore turn up roses and lilies in your life. You may be somebody that that hides God's Word in your heart and then lives through great struggles. But no matter what comes along in those struggles, we have all we need to be satisfied. No matter what we think is withheld from us, we have all we need to be content. We have the Lord. He is our portion and our cup. And we know that He controls the circumstances of our lives. 
you hold my lot. David then devotes himself to the Lord. He finds satisfaction in the Lord. And then this leads to our third section, number three, David's trust in the Lord. David's trust in the Lord. Of course, it makes sense if you're going to devote yourself to the Lord and you find your soul satisfied in the Lord that you would trust the Lord. But it's not simply an implication we have to draw. We find it explicitly in the psalm itself. Starting in verse 8, David begins to explicitly note his trust in God. He says in verse 8, I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Commentator Alan Ross notes that soldiers would put their shield on their left arm. Probably because most of them were right-handed. You could fight with your right hand. So what it did was it provided protection on my left side as I would fight with my right. Here David notes the right hand being the place of honor. He notes that, he, that, that he's set the Lord before him. He's put the Lord in his life in a place of honor. But there's also this note that because God is at his right hand, he is shielded. He may take up his shield on his left hand, but he knows that ultimately his protection is from God. And therefore, he can say in verse 8, I shall not be shaken. Again, this does not mean that, that difficult circumstances won't come into David's life, but he knows that ultimately, whatever comes in his life will not be the, the means by which his faith is, is sunk. This will not end in his ultimate demise. He will be preserved and guarded and protected by God. God is at his right hand. He shall not be shaken. Therefore, according to verse 9, that provides a platform, a basis for him to walk through life in joy. Verse 9, therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. In other words, if we know that God is our protector, again, he holds our lot. He is our portion. Then what comes into my life is only going to serve his good purposes for me. And he is protecting me and preserving me. How could that not result in us walking through life, <clears throat> being glad in our heart and rejoicing? Because we have this glorious position that David is describing here, one in which we trust God and know that he is trustworthy. But, but David says more. He even speaks of the security of his own flesh. At the end of verse 9, my flesh also dwells secure. Now, we could read that and think that what David is saying is, because God is my God, my flesh will never get hurt. I'll never get sick. I'll never get injured. We know that's not what David's saying, though, because in verse 9, see corruption. Now, Psalm 16 reads in many ways like David is simply talking about himself, doesn't it? Actually, it makes sense the way I, I, I hope I've explained it. It makes sense. David knows his flesh will secure. Even though David will die, death is not the last word. David will live forever in the presence of the Lord and know his pleasures forevermore. Now, we could say, well, yeah, but, but, but David is more than just a human being. David in the Bible is actually a picture of Christ, a type. In other words, you can read the Old Testament and see David go through things, and David experience things that are a picture that point you to things that Christ will experience. So, for example, David is the least of his brothers. 
the one who is overlooked, the one who is discarded, the one who is ignored, and yet God exalts him as king, much like later David's great son, the one in his line, Jesus the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, would be the stone that the builders rejected who became the chief cornerstone. Or we might say David was betrayed by his friends and Jesus was betrayed by his own disciple. We could do that a lot. I could point to many more. It's it's unmistakable, it's undoubtable that David's life is a picture of Christ. And so we could say about Psalm 16 that we're to read this psalm and understand that David simply speaks of himself, and yet, because David is a picture of Christ, it's a reminder to us of what will become of Christ, that God did not allow him to see corruption. But the problem with simply saying that, with simply saying that Psalm 16 is simply a David picturing a type here of Christ, a shadow of what's to come, is that Peter says more than that. On the day of Pentecost, from the text Ted read earlier, Peter stands up after the Holy Spirit is poured out on the followers of Jesus Christ, and Peter begins preaching. And as he's begun preaching, he bases his sermon on Psalm 16. He quotes what we've read, really climaxing in this verse 10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And Peter makes an interesting point. He says there's no way that David can simply be talking about himself here because David died and he was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, Peter was saying to those in Jerusalem, if you just walk right over there, you open that tomb, I promise you, you'll see some corruption. David died. His body is corrupting. Well, then everybody might have been thinking, well, then Peter, what in the world are you saying David was doing in that psalm? And he tells us, here's what David was doing. In 2 Samuel 7, God made David a promise. And the promise was that one day God would raise up a son from his line, a descendant of David, the son of David. And this particular son of David would reign over God's kingdom forever. And Peter said, David wrote Psalm 16 being a prophet. Knowing that God had made that promise to him, knowing that one of his sons, the promised Messiah, the Christ, would reign over God's kingdom forever, David wrote Psalm 16 prophesying that Jesus Christ, though he would die, would not see corruption. But his body would be raised from the dead, as indeed Peter proclaims it has been, this on the third day. And this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ, calling the people to repent and believe seems that Peter is saying much more than that David is simply, in Psalm 16, a picture, a type, a shadow of Christ. Rather, David was explicitly speaking about Jesus being raised from the dead. Now, my question is this. Is there anything in Psalm 16 that gives us a hint so that we might see what Peter saw on that day? Is there anything in Psalm 16 that says, you know what? David was clearly talking about himself in Psalm 16, but he was also clearly talking about another. And I think there is. If you note, throughout each verse of the psalm, 
Note how many first-person pronouns there are. I won't bore you with every one of them, although I could go verse by verse. We'll start in verse 1. I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Verse 3, in whom is all my delight. Verse 4, I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. You hold my lot. Verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. Maybe I will go every verse. Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Verse 9, therefore my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. I think we can say pretty confidently at this point, David does not hesitate to talk about himself in first person. Nobody does at the end of verse 10. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. He'll go right back to it in verse 11. You've made known to me the path of life. But at the end of verse 10, he switches, doesn't he? Third person. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. It may very well be that what the Spirit gave Peter insight to see in Psalm 16 in that moment is that the very moment David wrote this psalm, someone who is not shy to first-person pronouns, he switches at the end of verse 10, not just because he needs some poetic diversity. He didn't care about poetic diversity in any other verse in the psalm. He switched, perhaps, because he wanted to make clear the reason I know that my flesh will secure and the reason death will not be the last word for me is because God promised me that he's going to bring one of my sons to reign on his throne and that one will live forever. Death will not be the last word for him. He will not abandon him to Sheol. He will not let his Holy One, the Messiah, see corruption. He's going to raise him from the dead to reign forever. And because that's true, I can trust in him. Because that's true, my hope and trust extends even beyond this life. And brothers and sisters, I do not have to tell you this morning, we stand in the same hope. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he did not rise from the dead merely for David's sake. He lived, he died, and he was raised so that you and I, who by faith are united with him, might know that because he lives, death is not the last word for us either. We one day, when Christ will turn, will be raised. And even when we die, it will simply be a coming to life to live with Christ forever. And so what we see in Psalm 16, I think this life of David is something that should easily be said and be true of us as well. We should be people whom someone could describe as they trust in the Lord. They know that they are secure in God's plans. And so they trust in Him, knowing that even death isn't the last word. 
they find their satisfaction in God. No matter what happens in life, they know they have God, and not only that do they have their Lord, but they know that He holds their lot, that everything that passes into their life, the circumstances that come to them, come to them from God, and no one can thwart His good purposes for them. And therefore, they devote themselves fully to God. You are my God, and you I take refuge. I even love your people and will run from wickedness. And so my prayer for us this morning is that our response to this psalm might be what our response to something like 1 Corinthians 11, 1 would be, as Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, that we might say, God, we have heard your word. We have seen in Psalm 16 a picture of what it looks like to, to, to be wholeheartedly following after the Lord. We have seen a picture and smelled an aroma of spiritual maturity in this psalm, and we want it. We want this to be true of us. And so what we're going to do this morning in order to respond to God's Word in order to declare publicly that once more we have heard God's Word and our answer is yes and amen, by the grace of God, we will obey God's Word as we're going to come to the table. Now, if you aren't a believer this morning, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then I want to plead with you to do something before you would ever come to the table. I want to plead with you to place your faith in Jesus Christ. The Scripture says that right now, if you've never repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ, you're under the wrath of God. Romans 2 says, storing up for yourselves wrath on the day of judgment. So I want to plead with you this morning, if you're not a believer, to turn from your sins and place your faith, your hope entirely in Jesus Christ who lived and died and was raised. If you would like to talk to me or one of your neighbors after the service, we would love to talk to you about that. And then I want to urge you then to make that public, that you're a follower of Christ, a believer in Jesus Christ by being baptized. The, the visible symbol that Christ has given us to proclaim to the world that we are followers of Him. Now, if you're one who's already come to Christ, already professed your faith in Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to come to the table this morning. The way we're going to come is I'm going to have one of the pastors join me up front. One of the pastors is going to stand over here in the overflow area to my left. We're going to let row by row come, dismissing from the row to the outside, coming around, getting a portion, and coming back to the inside, second row following, third row following over here, the first row, second row following, and so on and so forth. As you come forward, we'll have in the tray stacks of cups, two cups stacked together, the bottom one with bread, the top one with juice. So as you come by, you can just get one stack of two cups, return to your seats, We'll eat the bread together. We'll drink from the cup together. We'll proclaim together in a unified way that we've heard God's word. And by his grace, our answer is yes and amen. So let's take a moment of silence now. As we prepare to come to the table, this will allow the musicians to get in place, but also perhaps allow you to appeal to the Lord, to voice to the Lord your response to his word this morning. Let's take a moment of silence.